It's a big day coming up this hour. Ian Simpkins is back, and we're excited to be back together. And then we'll be joined by Kate Shelnut, the senior news editor at Christianity Today. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Ian, last week, I can't tell you how many times I said alongside Ian Simpkins, and then you weren't here, and it was just sad. Did you actually <laughs> say it on air? <laughs> I can't, did I say it? Uh, not in the singular terms, in the multiple plural <laughs> terms, I said, especially when you were first gone, but you're going to laugh at this. Then I got really, I got fine at like stop saying it but i realized how much i just that that's just the cadence right mm-hmm. alongside and i didn't do it for a couple of days and then literally the last segment on friday i did it <laughs> <laughs> you could just replace like ian with uh like my broken heart or something alongside my <laughs> broken sad lonely heart or something like that 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 could have worked it was the first day i i just kept confused alongside nope not alongside and then it made it all the way till friday so a uh, couple pieces of house cleaning. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Find us online at 1160hope.com and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. So we just ask that you subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we did while Ian was gone last week. We were uh, blessed to have lots of just really interesting people to talk to pastors, authors, college president. All sorts of different people. And so uh, if you missed any of those interviews, go on back and listen specifically at the podcast. It's kind of the best place to do it. And again, we ask that you subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, so, Ian, you've been gone for like 10 days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we were starting to wonder, I'm like, is he coming back? Is is <laughs> is he going to make it back? And uh, we didn't tell people where you were, just that you were out of town and yeah. getting a good break. But tell us about your vacation, everything. Where'd you go? What'd you do? And most importantly, how did it go traveling with a uh, two and a half and a one and a half year old? <laughs> yeah, that's the million dollar question that everyone's been asking, <laughs> typically with a certain tone of like, are you out of your mind? Like, that's, that's usually how people ask it, you know, like less inquisitive, more like, are you feeling okay? Which, you know, my wife and I, on like the final stretch back home yesterday, we both were like, that was wonderful, but we need like a three day nap from that vacation. Like, it's just, it yes. just is constant. And, you know, again, huge props to my wife because for me, I, I like, let's get the driving done with, you know? So, like, oh, 10 hours with the kids in the car. How bad could it be? Like, just, let's just power through. <laughs> yes. She was much more on the camp. Like, why don't we just, you know, drive like three hours at a time, get different Airbnbs, explore whatever city we just happened to land in. That way we're not in the car for, you know, any extreme length of time. And that was the right call. That was, that was super, super wise. And it meant that we got to see, you know, a bunch of different cities. And for us, again, it's tough, you know, not only with toddlers, but also with COVID. Like there's plenty of things that we could oh, have, yeah. you know, under normal circumstances, gone inside and done with them. And you couldn't even really do, do that. I was telling you before we went live here, it was it was a little painful because uh, there was a couple of days in there that was just remarkably like rainy and gray. And I'm seeing all of our friends back home posting like, this is the best Chicagoland weather <laughs> ever. And I'm like, what? We left for this? And then we came back last night and it was freezing. And I was like, oh, yep. oh my goodness. But we, yeah, we were in Indiana. We were uh, Indiana. That's a whole state. We were in Indianapolis. We also spent a little bit of time in Lexington and Nashville and Louisville. The kind of fun. The, the target for us was the, was Smoky Mountains. We we neither of us had ever seen it. 
We really, really wanted to see Smoky Mountains, and the weather for that day was wonderful. I got to brag on my boys. They are both, you know, they're young, they're little, and we wanted to hike to uh, Grotto Falls, and we didn't have, like, a carrier or a stroller or anything, and both of my boys walked the almost three-mile trail, which is, like, <laughs> a legit trail. It's not paved or anything like that. Like Wow. Yeah, like, up little hills and over rocks and a couple of streams, and I... As a dad, could I just could not have been more proud. It was it was so much fun. So yeah, I mean, good amount of driving. Tried a bunch of different, you know, coffee shops and saw some sites and went to some farms and saw some animals and all that. It was it was a blast. I, I'm looking back at the photos today, of course, and I'm just I'm just super super grateful for a chance to do that. And it's uh, it's the, not only the longest that we've gone as a family anywhere. It's like the longest I've been gone anywhere for year, for probably really? years yeah to be gone for more than a week is uh is very very strange i don't know if anyone out there can relate it's very very difficult for for me to actually to do it and we've mentioned before i'm bad at taking vacations i'm just not good at doing it so that felt really good to kind of just unplug and not answer emails or text messages or any of that of course returning to a, a mountain of them that you have to then <laughs> spend the next two weeks responding to but really really grateful we had we had a great time I'm I'm awaiting a response from some emails from the past two weeks. So I'll <laughs> I was hoping we could just talk about it on air, actually, <laughs> just to expedite the process. So we don't tend to spend a lot of time talking about ourselves uh, on the show, but I am curious because you joked about it, but it is true. Like in the last two years of our doing the show, I'm kind of vacation guy. You're kind of not. <laughs> and uh, and part of that is just stage of life. My kids are older, but uh, we tend to to take a lot of, you know, as many vacations as we can and do stuff like that. So I am curious, you, you touched on it. Was it hard for you to actually disconnect? How long did it take you to disconnect? And for the other people out there who are like, you know what? I'm not vacation guy. I could never disconnect. I can't do that. What was your takeaway or maybe what's your word to them as somebody who also struggles with that sometimes? Yeah. I mean, it, it is a legitimate difficulty to you know unplug i completely understand that and you've mentioned this before too it gets like progressively easier you know so the beginning of the trip yeah. you know you're you're wanting to check your phone or respond to just one more email or whatever it is that does get progressively easier but i you know i've been reading a lot on rest and sabbath and rhythms and kind of just i wanted to actually make that a part of what i was going to be like thinking on and meditating on as i was actually trying to live it out i thought that would maybe help me and, uh, you know, a good amount of time in, in John 15, where the command of Jesus is to abide, right? To dwell. One definition that I found of that word was to make one's home in. And I thought, oh, man, that is like such a such an invitation. Like abiding isn't like just a quick, you know, 30 second Devo at the beginning of your day, which is important. But um, to just simply be present, to be with, to spend time with, to abide, not only, you know, with God, but also with the people that he's, he's given you, your, your family and your close circle mm -hmm. of friends. And so there, I was just thinking a lot about abiding, thinking about Jesus who's saying, you know, come to me all who are weary and I'll give you rest, not more to-do lists, not more things to accomplish. You know, like I was feeling weary. I was feeling in that overburdened camp and it was like, man, the yeah. invitation of Jesus is to rest, to, to be still. You even think about the Psalm that everyone always quotes, right? Be still yeah. and know that I am God. When do we know God when we're still, when we yeah. stop, when we hit pause. And I thought, okay, so this isn't just about some kind of like physical rejuvenation, which is important. It's not even just about like detoxing from social media and technology, which is also important. It's, I think it's deeper than that. I think it's about 
how do I actually pay better attention to the interior life so that I can be the kind of husband I want to be and the kind of father yeah. that I want to be and the kind of pastor and friend that I, I want to be, you know, and like we, we know we're supposed to love God and love others, right? That's sort of like Christianity 101. But do any of us love well when we're sleep deprived? Like, no, nobody <laughs> like that's That should seem so obvious, but it's, it's, you know, it's still, it's hard to get there. So I, for me, it was, it was, it was as much a spiritual journey as it was just a, a real gift to be with my family. And it doesn't hurt to like, mm see mountains you know <laughs> like that whole that part not heard at golly, all that whole part of the country is just gorgeous and we got to kind of experience these little towns and and to kind of go without a plan is sort of our style which is so much fun we had reservations awesome. you know where we're gonna stay but like hey let's just see where we want to go when we get here and that was super refreshing that felt like uh like it was good for my soul man in so many ways so yeah super great but thank thank you for holding on the fort by the way i caught oh. a bunch of the podcast and you guys you guys did a great job in my absence my pleasure. It was good. It's good to have you back, but but we were glad for you to get away. And uh, I know when we go on vacation, you know, there's the, the other thing as a dad, it's like you, when you're in your normal rhythm of life, it's like how much quality time can I find with my kids? But right. I love vacations, just quantity time, right? Yeah. It's just right, just all the time with each other. And then you're like, oh, I really like my family. Like yes. This is good. And it's good to be together. Well, it's good to have you back, man. Thanks, man. thought we would just touch on all of that. And uh, yeah, we're excited for uh, to be back together here on the show. Well, coming up next, someone we've had on multiple times, the senior news editor at Christianity Today, Kate Shelnut, is going to join us uh, to talk first about a story she wrote uh, about kind of the closure uh, of that this long saga between James McDonald and Harvest Bible Chapel. And then in the second segment, she's with us. We're going to talk about another article she wrote about white evangelical voters and kind of the Pew research about their support for President Trump. So we're looking forward to talking to Kate Shelnut next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're glad to have you with us on this Monday afternoon. Uh, we are excited to be joined for the, I believe, the third time uh, by Kate Shelnut. Kate is the senior news editor at Christianity Today. Kate, thank you so much for joining us uh, yet again. We really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So as we said, you've been on the show a couple times, but in case there's people out there who don't know who you are, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, I am the senior news editor at Christianity Today magazine, and I cover most of our online news coverage day to day, and I am based in Augusta, Georgia. Right on. Kate, I don't think we actually mentioned this before we went live, but our very first day on the very first day of this show, I think it was the very first segment, actually, yes, uh, yes. there was some news that was breaking about Harvest and James McDonald, and uh, it was nerve wracking because, you know, we had no idea what we were doing. We still kind of don't. But um, <laughs> Brian and I are both pastors here in Chicagoland. So this is a, a, a story that has pained us to talk about, but also one that we felt like we really needed to. And uh, you wrote an article for Christianity Today regarding Harvest and James McDonald. Before we kind of dive into the weeds a little bit, could you give us a, a 30,000 foot perspective on what that article was about? Sure. So I think that the biggest news involving James McDonald probably dates back about two years mm -hmm. um, when Pastor McDonald um, at then, you know, the, the pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel, um, large multi-site megachurch up there in Chicago had 
filed a defamation lawsuit against um, Julie Royce, who's a Christian writer, as well as two former members who um, who became bloggers, um, who formed a blog to critique what they saw as mismanagement, uh, financial misgivings, and poor leadership on the part of, of James McDonald at their former church. Um, and so out of this, it was, I think it was kind of unprecedented. I think a lot of pastors and churches get criticized, but to see the level of defensiveness that um, McDonald took at that point really started on a trajectory that we are continuing to see the ripple effects with now, um, with the latest update that I wrote about kind of the, the settlement, the arbitration that's gone on between, um, James McDonald's and Harvest two years later. Yeah. And getting into the details, as Ian mentioned, Kate, could you tell us uh, what was the result of that arbitration? Uh, obviously, we're going to have this article up on our Facebook page, but why don't you let our people know uh, how did this all end? What ended up coming of the arbitration? Right. So it was early last year, early 2019, when um, James McDonald was fired from Harvest because of uh, behavior and remarks that stemmed from this defamation fight, um, him really speaking out and defending himself and kind of growing, um, growing in concerns about his leadership. So after that, it was a contentious break from Harvest. And I actually think that one of the biggest problems was that his ministry, his personal ministry was so wrapped up in the church itself that the biggest fight was for him to try to reclaim his teaching ministry was called Walk in the Word, which was a radio program. And he wanted to be able to continue teaching and preaching. But because the church controlled um, that part of his ministry, he had to kind of fight to have it back. And so they entered a Christian consolation process and arbitration to for him to kind of wrestle back the control of that. And I mean, I guess in arbitration, it's not considered like a legal win. But if you want to put it in almost the most plain terms for listeners to understand, he essentially won the case for what he wanted out of this, mm-hmm. out of this deal. He won um, the rights to have that that back, um, some some of the building, kind of all the materials they used to use to record, all the books that the ministry owned, a plot of land, um, and in all, it's one point four five million dollars plus um, more in assets. Um, so this is the church, I think, giving away a good amount um, to to their former pastor. Um, and both of them don't seem to be even on the same page now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without getting into it too much, actually, there's elements to this story that hit really close to home for me and the first church that hired me and an arbitration and continued mm-hmm. kind of tension, both personally and legally. There's just a lot of components to this actually that are are uh, strangely familiar what i what i kind of want to ask you because again the article is on the facebook page we encourage people to you know read the details but when brian and i first did this story on our very first day there's certainly people that were saying hey thank you for talking about this this is really important not just in chicago land but for everybody mm-hmm. but there were also other people that are like i thought you guys were christians how dare you talk about yeah. this mm-hmm. church's handlings or this pastor or that that's their business why why spend any airtime talking about it i would love to kind of get your perspective on some of those particular postures with regards to why talk about this at all? Why write about it? Why is this important for us to spend even any time at all uh, unpacking? 
Yeah. And I think that, um, if you follow all the news around James McDonald in the past two years, there were a ton of updates that either local media or bloggers or people on Twitter picked up on. And there are reasons that, you know, we don't cover those things. Um, both because whether or not we can confirm stuff like that and because our bar for what we want to report at Christianity Today is what things that we do think have implications for the church. And as far as what Harvest has done um, in how they're legally set up and how mega churches are structured and how um, pastor ministries relate to the ministries of their church, that there are some real practical takeaways and ramifications of, I think, what happened in this separation that are applicable to the church at large. And so that was our biggest I think goal going into our coverage from the very start was what kind of liabilities are churches open to when they are operating on a scale that's like being a business that within, you know, a generation or two of the American church, um, we've evolved into seeing churches, yeah, with huge budgets, with board governance, meaning even more. So, I think to me, that's that's why we report on these kind of things is because not that we hope or think that every church will end up this way, but because there are some ways that you can help leadership and, um, you know, people in that kind of executive pastor, COO type role um, to better set the church up to be healthy financially and organizationally mm. um, after seeing what can happen in situations like this. Mm. That other voice here is Kate Shelnut. She has a new article, a new article out of Christianity Today entitled Harvest Settles Multi-Million Dollar Agreement with James McDonald. Kind of the end, hopefully, to this story. And uh, that is up at our Facebook page. Kate is uh, nice enough. She's going to stay with us to talk about another article she released just last week at Christianity Today that's entitled this. White evangelicals are actually for Trump in 2020, not just against his opponent. So Kate's been on before to talk politics with us and some of her reporting there and is going to be nice enough to stay. And we're going to talk about this most recent article of hers. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. Uh, glad to have you joining us. And we're really glad to be joined for a second segment by Kate Shelnut. Kate is the senior news editor uh, at Christianity Today. You can find her on Twitter at Kate Shelnut. Uh, if you missed the first segment that we had Kate on talking about her story about kind of the end of the uh, James McDonald story with Harvest Bible Chapel, uh, go ahead to our Facebook page or go to our podcast and you can find that. And Kate, uh, again, we're grateful for you joining us some more. You wrote another fascinating article the other day that came up at Christianity Today entitled this, White Evangelicals Are Actually For Trump in 2020, Not Just Against His Opponent. And before we get into everything that that article kind of means and everything in there. Could you just give us kind of the flyover of the research that went into that? And what are some of the major takeaways? Sure. So this was something that I had, this premise is something that I had speculated based on everything we've heard from evangelicals on both sides the past couple of months, which is evangelicals who um, are supportive of President Trump have said, 
Um, I've only become more supportive of him since the last election. Maybe last election I voted trepidatiously or I voted kind of holding my nose and really he's come through on everything that's important to me. Whereas people who are evangelicals who have been hesitant about President Trump or opposed to him have become more opposed. Mm -hmm. So I was able to, to work with Pew to get some exclusive breakouts to CT looking at whether voters characterize their votes as for one candidate or against the opposing candidate. And this was a big narrative in 2016, the idea that um, evangelicals voted for President Trump because it was a vote against Hillary Clinton. Um, they were more likely to say that than um, then this year, they're more likely to say, I'm actually voting for Trump than against Joe Biden. So we see a complete flip-flop in that white evangelical base. The numbers are actually exactly the same. Mm. Um, 78%, um, according to, to Pew, say they of white evangelicals say they favor Trump, but this time it's actually because of Trump himself and not because of who he's running against. Wow. You know, it's interesting that you say that, too, because that just in interpersonal conversations has not been my experience from people who voted for Trump in 2016. But what I also find interesting is that even just anecdotal, I don't know, uh, opposition, I suppose, like it's been it's been pretty interesting even watching, like, for example, SNL last weekend, where some people felt they were you know, too harsh to Trump or too harsh to Biden. And it feels like even, you know, four or five years ago when I would talk to someone in our church about like, well, yeah, you know, they're both Imago Day. They're both made in the image and like this of God. We need to begin there. People are way more receptive to that notion than it felt like than they are now. I'm wondering now that you've kind of taken a deep dive into this research, like why, why do you think this shift other than maybe like you alluded to, well, it feels like he's, he's followed through on what he promised. Are there other components there that you think are uh, at play here? Sure. So on the one hand, I do think it's that, People who had certain priorities for the Trump administration going in have seen those priorities come to be in terms of um, the way that he has spoken or acted around religious liberty, around abortion, um, appearing at the March for Life, calling himself the most pro-life president. So they can find kind of evidence to see Trump supporting their side. But on the other hand, if we're talking about, right, the campaign involves two candidates, Hillary Clinton I think had a, a lot more enthusiasm from even Democratic supporters um, last presidential election. People were really enthused at at having a, their first female president, whereas Joe Biden has emerged as a candidate. And even among Democrat-leaning voters, among Biden-leading voters, still a, a huge chunk of those are saying they're voting against Trump and not for Biden. Hmm. Um, so. So the animating factor is still the president that um, the one kind of calling the shots is is President Trump and and Joe Biden is reacting on the other side to him. So I think that's a completely new dynamic um, and an interesting one to think about. We're going to have, yeah, the third debate coming up this week on Thursday and um, to think of of how these two candidates will square up um, for the final time. It's interesting. Yeah. What do you, speaking of the debate, how much do you think that is going to sway people? Do you think people have pretty much made up their minds? And maybe yourself, what are you looking for in this debate that's coming up? Yeah, I, I absolutely think people have uh, made up their minds. <laughs> but the thing is, they still 
are watching the debates and tuning in. I think a little of it might affect voter enthusiasm and turnout, right? Of of how much more eager are you? Maybe if you see one point on your side or one point on the other side, especially, yeah, if you're pro-Trump, that you might be even more vocal about your vote, about getting out the vote, about campaigning. Maybe there'll be something that makes you either excited or mad in the debate to do one more rally or one more thing of door knocking um, to see some of those undecided voters, even though the number is much smaller um, this year than in the past, as we discussed last time I was on. But um, but I think it's more of, of how much these debates will be used to rally a base that's already made up their minds. Right. And another thing I want to ask you about that you mentioned at the very end of your article, and it's a, it's a topic that Brian and I have talked a lot about since the start of the show, but especially in the last seven or eight months, you wrote the the racial divide among evangelical voters holds for pastors too. that only 6% of African-American pastors say they support Trump while the majority 61% will be voting for Biden. How, how big a role do you think, or do you see or predict uh, race being in the coming weeks? I think it's, it's huge. We were able to see last year um, just how much the, the vote was divided by race and this year, um, it's going to be even tighter. You mentioned African Americans. That's one group that even more so than like other demographics outside of religion, African American Protestants are reliably, um, supporters of Democratic candidates and are actually probably the only group enthusiastic about Joe Biden. Um, his connection to President Obama is a big part of that. We were able to go on the campaign trail early in the year um, prior to COVID um, down here in South Carolina and saw black churches really enthusiastic about him. Um, but now we're seeing Hispanic evangelical voters um, are more in favor of Trump than ever. And so we're seeing that divide get really narrow, get close, kind of 50-50, um, whereas um, they didn't have as much enthusiasm for Trump in the past. One of the ways that the president has appealed, um, especially to Christians who come from Central American, South American, Latin American countries, is this contrast of the kinds of dictatorships that they or their parents or grandparents fleed from. He hopes to say, provide a contrast to say, this will be a, a place where you can practice your freedom of religion or your freedom to start a business, unlike what they did. Hmm. Um, so that's one of the ways that he's appealed to, yeah, let's say Florida, um, Cuban Americans, um, and other types of Hispanic American churchgoers. Great. And Kate, again, we're thrilled that you joined us. This is probably unfair because we've only got like two minutes left, but you did a third article that we were going to talk to you about, about Mark Devers, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Uh, we'll put that up on our Facebook page, but can you just in two minutes tell us why that's an important court case and an important ruling and uh, why people should be watching that one? Sure. So I think if, if you're going to look at one COVID-related restrictions case, I think the the Mark Dever Church, um, which is Capitol Hill Baptist in D.C., is the one to look at because they made a really specific theological argument for gathering. Um, they wanted to be able to gather outside with mass social distance, but even um, even with all those precautions, they were not allowed to in D.C. Um, and they said the D.C. mayor's office kept saying. Oh, churches can gather, but they can only gather virtually. And they made this argument that based on their interpretation of the New Testament, that a church has to gather 
in a physical assembly to be defined as a church mm-hmm. and that it was not up to the government to decide what it means to not forsake the assembly. And that's exactly what the judge ended up ruling in an emergency injunction on their beha- on their behalf, which basically says you've made the case enough here that you can go ahead and gather while we wait to kind of finish letting this case go through the system. So they're able to meet now um, because of yeah, religious freedom, First Amendment um, argument made on their behalf. So that's a it's a big victory. And it was really dependent, I think, on the fact that they don't they don't do any meeting digitally. They haven't done virtual gatherings. They haven't done online church before this or after this. So Fascinating. You can find all the articles we just discussed with Kate up at our Facebook page or at ChristianityToday.com. Kate Shelnut is the senior news editor at Christianity Today. You can find her on Twitter at Kate Shelnut and obviously all over Christianity Today. Kate, we're really grateful for your time. Thanks so much for joining us again today. Thank you. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on what appears to be a rainy, cold uh, Monday afternoon. Uh, Ian, for like the 10 days you were gone, it was cool, but it was every day I was like a beautiful sunny day here in Chicago. I'm starting to wonder. You come back. I'm looking outside. It's raining right now. Uh, do you want to apologize? Do you have something you need to share? What's What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a Christian, Brian. So I'd first like to confess and repent, uh, <laughs> not just merely apologize. I want to I'm really, I want I want to really bring this to the throne room, if that's okay. So if we could get like a like an underscore or do you have any incense we could use? Over, if all the heads could be bowed as we do this, does that, does that, does that translate well to radio? <laughs> uh, it's just purely coincidental, but it is raining and cold outside. I suppose that time of year is coming, but none of us want to believe it. Uh, every now and then, you know, we have articles that we do, but sometimes we just find interesting stuff that we find uh, that we read on Twitter, uh, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, sometimes it could be a dumpster fire, but sometimes <laughs> people can write stuff that goes, huh. That's that's something interesting to think about. Do I agree with that? Do I not? And one of the people who we've quoted before, who is a really interesting Twitter follow, whether you tend to agree with her or not, is Beth Moore. Uh, Beth Moore is well known uh, for being prolific in speaking, in writing, uh, writing, in creating curriculum. Beth Moore uh, has done a lot and and she's very um uh, she, she tweets a lot and, and she tweets somewhat provocatively uh, to her opinions on things. And so let me read what she uh, wrote here. And then we're going to let Ian, who's been away for 10 days, he's got to just jump back into the deep <laughs> end here. So we're going to let him jump in first on what Beth Moore had to say here. Beth Moore tweeted this this morning. She wrote, we have burned down our evangelical witness, burned it to the ground. But here is what I know. I know God can bring beauty from ashes. I believe he will raise up a people purified by the very fires we set, a people defined by Jesus himself, not denomination nor political party. So Beth Moore wrote that a little while ago. It currently has 10,000 likes, uh, 1,500 retweets, 500 comments. So it's uh, gone viral. It's getting some traction. So Ian, take any part of that. I'm wondering what you think 
Uh, what do you, what do you think she's getting at? And do you agree or disagree with what Beth Moore said here? You know, the, the first thing I thought of, I don't know if we've ever talked about this quote on the show before. GK Chesterton had a, has a quote that I've used numerous times. He said, uh, at least five times the faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. In each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. And <laughs> I thought that's like, first off, very Chesterton, but I think kind of his point is, Throughout history, Christianity has appeared to, maybe in Beth Moore's words, uh, burned entirely to the ground or in Chesterton's words, gone completely to the dogs. And I think what they're, what they're both attempting to do with that quote, with their, with their observation is to, to pull back a, a wider, deeper, more profound observation about like the arc of Christianity. It's not to say like a part of what I appreciate about Beth Moore is, you know, her, her body of work, I think, speaks to this. She's not in any way dismissing what we're seeing as inconsequential. She's not like, hey, it's not all that bad. Don't yeah. worry about it. She's like, nope, burn to the ground, which, you know, we could we could probably split hairs about whether or not that is true or not, whether we believe that or not. Um, but what I think she's doing well is is not only helping people see, like, what's possible from this current circumstance, but also like painting a picture of what could be a a future reality. I don't I don't know if that's the case. Like I keep hearing people talk about in podcasts and on radio shows or whatever about like the unity that, you know, the nation felt after 9/11 and how they're feeling some of that here in this regard. And I don't know that the the two are the same to be honest. And there's we've talked about even some of the problematic weeks and months that followed 9/11. It wasn't all sunshine and roses there either. Um but I do think there's a lot of people that are writing pretty winsomely about mm. not not panicking in a way that throws up our hands in retreat or surrender, but also like leaning into what m- might God want to do in the midst of all of this. And you and I have been very clear to say, like, I don't believe that God sent COVID to like bring the mm. church back to himself or to teach us a lesson or to like save soul. I don't like any of that. Um, but I, I, I do really resonate with the idea of God bringing beauty from ashes that for a lot of us, mm-hmm. like this looks like the pit of despair. And for a lot of people, that's a very real reality. You know, um, I'll be curious to know, and I maybe you want to know, you know, do you think that there will be a redefined, like, like she says, a people defined by Jesus himself, not denomination or political party. Do you, do you think that we will see, a dismantling of denominations and political parties, or at least a blurring of the lines between the two. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of what uh, I think about her tweet is whether or not you believe her first part of it, right? Have we burned down our evangelical witness because of our, uh, you know, being defined not by Jesus, but by denomination. I think she's more getting at political parties that were uh, that our politics and our, our witness. Um, I, I am hopeful, but it's going to be a really slow process. Like I think oftentimes people have gone, oh, now is coming a time when the the church will be less tied to party X or just to denominational tribalism or this and that. And it never really gets away from it. Could we make some slow incremental improvements? Hopefully. Uh, do I think that there's some reformation coming? You know, I think absent a move of uh, of the Holy Spirit, uh, I don't see that. I don't think there's going to be this big uh, reckoning coming later on, say, post-election mm. or anything like that. Um, 
I, but that would be great. That would be uh, fabulous. What about yourself? Do you think that there's coming a change? Do you, do you sense a shift coming in evangelicalism or is it probably going to be more of the same in your opinion? Uh, I think a shift is probably a better word. I, I don't, I don't know that any, any lasting systemic change happens um, like on a dime, but like, for example, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about the, the racial unrest in our country and you, you can kind of pinpoint one specific awful incident as sort of the catalyst for what became a, a global movement. So I, I do think certain specific pinpointed events can serve catalytic purposes, but I think to see any kind of like sustained, like if the goal is theological ecumenism, right? Some, some unity among Christians, Christ followers, that's like long, arduous, patient work. And I think the same is true in politics. I, I actually do think that a, a fracturing in politics might be more impending than something mm-hmm. on the faith side and the religious side. But I, I could be way off on that one. I think a number of people are probably waking up to some of the divisions and distinctions that aren't helpful. And I think will be yeah. motivated, inspired yeah. to work for change i think that's definitely i think that's definitely possible and probably already happening to be honest yeah it'd be nice if if post-election we we went for i don't know the common good (laughs) we were trying to like that uh we can be prayerful about this and hopeful and and really the kind of takeaway is each of us need to do our part right and it's easier to say what other people are doing wrong uh, instead of what maybe how we could be part of the solution. So uh, we'll put that tweet up. It's already up on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Let us know what you think. Coming up uh, next, we are going to discuss the Bears game yesterday, but in particular, in particular, uh, the post-game press conference by the Bears starting quarterback. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hopefully. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about yesterday's Bears game. And then we're joined by Caitlin Chess, author of the book, The Liturgy of Politics. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. Glad to have you with us today. If you've missed any of the show, you can find it on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can find us online, 1160hope.com, and you can get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. We are grateful to those of you who do that. We're excited here in a, in a little while to talk to Caitlin Chess, the author of a new book called The Liturgy of Politics. You're going to want to make sure to hear that. Uh, Ian, before we talk about yesterday's Bears game, I did, I neglected to ask you in the beginning, uh, Sorry to jump a heavy topic on you, but uh, COVID numbers are going kind of crazy. Are you getting worried about this? Uh, every time we just got emails from the kids' schools about like, hey, we're monitoring this. And I'm reading an article that Illinois is not doing well. Are you kind of do what does this do to you? Where are you kind of tuning out, kind of used to it? Where are you at with this? Yeah, man, ask me in five minutes and it'll probably be a different answer. <laughs> I just saw yes. who was it? I think it was Michael Frost. He posted a uh, a map of the U.S. of uncontrolled spread, trending poorly, caution warranted, and trending better. And via this map, there are only two states that are actually trending better. Really? And the vast majority 
are in the first category, uncontrolled spread. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It looks like a dozen or so in the trending poorly. So, um, yeah, I mean, realistically, there that that is certainly alarming. It's alarming with an asterisk, though, I guess, because like, like you you said. We were probably, what, in April or May? We were like, gosh, I'm almost already numb to even talking right. about this just because, right. you know, you and I are, are doing a lot of our jobs remotely. Uh, I have two young ones. Having two young ones is pretty much what, like, a quarantine is anyway. You know? like, <laughs> yes. You're like, oh, I can't go dancing like I normally go dancing. Like, I haven't gone dancing in 15 years. Like, I don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. So there's a part of me that almost thinks, the stage of life stuff makes it a little, little odd, but you know, like we, we were in the South and there's, there's a, a, a big disparity yes. between, I mean, we were like in three or four different States too. So I'm not singling out any one state or city, but that, you know, looked a lot different than it looks up here. Even just driving through certain towns. It's like, wow, doesn't feel like there's a pandemic going on at all in this city. <laughs> you know, right. like, yeah. so even so I'm still even processing through some of that. Um, having just got back yesterday. So it's also weird. Yeah. Alarmed, cautious, concerned. I don't, I don't know. Where, where do you land in all this? Uh, all of what you just said, it does change depending on what I'm looking at. I'm selfishly just hoping like, you know, we're all starting to make a little bit of progress of going back to a little bit of school or church being a little more normal or these things. You're like, I just don't want to go backwards. I know that's secondary to the health of it, but that's kind of where my mindset is right now. Like, hmm. Oh, I just, my kids are literally supposed to start going back to school tomorrow. Uh, and you're just like, oh, please, can we just do this? <laughs> like, we just want to get there. So it's mm-hmm. certainly worth keeping an eye on because I was reading something today from our mayor and here in Downers Grove, and it, it got me a little worried. Uh, I And I realized I haven't been really keeping up on it very much. Uh, so it got me a little worried. Well, uh, we'll, we'll keep talking about that as the week goes on. I want to take a hard right turn here to some good news, especially for you Bears fans. They had a big win down in Carolina yesterday. I believe it was 24 to 16. And the Bears starting quarterback, Nick Foles, he had uh, a post-game press conference that has gone a little viral. People are talking about it because of just uh, his message that he put it. So I thought it'd be fun to play it because I think there's some great points in here just about leadership in general and perspective. And so it's about two minutes long. It's the starting quarterback of the Chicago Bears, Nick Foles. Give this a listen from the post-game yesterday. Uh, lose pretty or win ugly. I think that we'd rather win ugly. Um, you know, I think that's the common thing. So uh, I think it tells you a lot about our team. Is this who we are offensively? We want to improve. We want to get better. We want to have rhythm. But ultimately in the NFL, it's about winning games. Um, it doesn't matter how you do it. It just matters that you get it done. If you put up 50 points and you lose a game, those 50 points don't mean anything. Um, so right now we're winning games. We're playing together as a team. We can improve. I think that's exciting. If we were winning these games and playing perfect and they were this tight and we're playing perfect, what do you do? Where do you improve? I mean, then we're sitting here and it's like, man, I I guess when we just, you know, play those teams, it's just not going to happen. Well, right now we have a lot of areas to improve offensively once again, but we are figuring out ways to, you know, score and get points and move the ball and do those things. We can fix what we're doing. It doesn't happen overnight offenses don't get fixed overnight. And sometimes they don't get fixed throughout the course of years. You've seen in the NFL, there's been teams that have been bad offensively for a very long time. We're not one of those teams. We're a team that's young offensively. We're growing. We're getting to know each other. We're figuring out who we are and we're doing it at the right time. And as a team, we're winning these games. And I think that's what's important. 
now we're not going to get complacent and say, hey, man, we're five and one. This is it. No, like we're, we're sitting there in the locker room after the game talking through it. Hey, we got to be better here. This is what we got to do. Hey, communication here, route running here. Hey, we got to be able to run the ball here. We know that. All right, Ian. Uh, besides like, hey, I, be, I want to run through a wall for that guy, right? <laughs> like want to play with that guy. Uh, <laughs> what'd you take away, not just football wise, but maybe as a pastor, as a leader, somebody who thinks about leadership? I found some of the stuff he said interesting. Uh, what'd you think about what Nick Foles said there? All right, let me start with the positives because I don't want to come back my first day back on the show. Being the negative. It's a second segment. That's, it's a second hour. <laughs> I know. Still, though, man, the, the, the idea that they know what they need to improve on and that's exciting, I, I completely resonate with that. Where yep. he was talking about, it's one thing if we were like winning these games and we were functioning perfectly. It's sort of like, well, where do you go from here? He's like, we're winning, but we also know we have some major gaps. That's super exciting because we know what we need to attack, mm-hmm. what we need to go after. This is this would probably this would make me a terrible coach. I think that's probably why um, <laughs> no one's asking me to be one. But when he talks about like, hey, if you put up fifty points, you lose those points. It doesn't mean anything. I'm like, I don't know that it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, through, and, I'm, and I'm probably diving too deep into this, but I'm thinking even, you know, when my kids are old enough to start playing, yeah. um, I, I want them to have like a hunger, obviously, but I also want them to know like, Hey, playing well uh, is still important. Playing with integrity is still important. And again, I know he's not talking about integrity necessarily, but it was close to sort of like, Hey, um, the ends justify the means. It was, he was yeah, yeah, close. Yeah. You know what I mean? He was close to saying that, which isn't quite what he was getting at. But I, I still think that there's value to like growing as a team, learning as a team, even if you, you know, made 50 points and still lost. There's there's something to be gleaned from that, which, again, is why I would probably make a terrible coach. Because I think <laughs> it, there's, there's more than just winning games. Right. But I I got the general sentiment and why you put it there. And, and thought it was a good segment. What, what did you think? I just like, uh, A, I found it inspiring, but I do like him saying we're winning, but we're not perfect. We know we have stuff to work on. But then he said, we yeah. believe in one another. And that's what great right. teams do. It made me think about just church or whatever else you might be leading in going, we have room to grow. Anyone who's like, ah, I got it all figured out. We're perfect. Don't follow that person. Right. And and yeah. so we've got room to grow, but we're in this together and we're going to keep grinding and keep trying to get better. Uh, we're going to keep trying to grow. Uh, there was some sports to, uh, speak in there, right? For sure. Like we like to win ugly more than lose pretty and that kind of stuff. Um, but, but I thought the general sentiment of always can keep getting better, but what's most important is that we're in this for the person next to us. We're in this together. I always find that a bit inspiring. So it was nice to hear Nick Foles and it's nice to hear after a win, somebody saying, but we could still keep getting better. You like to hear that out of your quarterback. So, uh, hopefully yeah. you Bears fans are happy. Another good win. <laughs> a lot of people saying it's the ugliest five and one they've ever seen, but you know what? In the end, you don't apologize for wins, right? <laughs> it says the Giants and the Lions, although both our teams won yesterday. Both That's our teams true. won That's yesterday. Right. Isn't that weird that we have a Chicago show and like neither exactly. you or I are Bears fans? <laughs> exactly. Uh, Uh, Anyway, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by an author by the name of Caitlin Shess. She's the author of a new book, a very timely book called The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, We are thrilled to be joined on the phone all the way from very warm Dallas, Texas. We're uh, glad to be joined by the author of a new book called The Liturgy of Politics. Uh, we're joined by Caitlin Shess. Caitlin, thanks so much for joining us today. 
Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, For our audience who may or may not know you, why don't you introduce yourself any way you see fit? Yeah, so I uh, work in young adult ministry in Dallas uh, with men and women in their 20s and 30s, and I am finishing up my THM at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I primarily write at the intersection of faith and politics, um, and so that's kind of what my my new book covers. So what I would love, I have so many questions about this book, by the way. It looks, <laughs> it looks wonderful, and even reading the summary, I'm like, oh, this is a lot of been, it's been what our heartbeat for this show has been, honestly, for people mm. to be mindful of the stuff that is forming us and shaping us even when we're not aware of it. But before we get into all that, I know that plenty of people already will have a hard time even getting over the word liturgy. We, Brian and I are both pastors. We encounter mm-hmm. people all the time where liturgy, liturgy still feels like a, like a dirty word to them. Yeah. Would you just take a moment and unpack why you chose that word? Yeah. So I use the word liturgy pretty broadly um, to include all of the things that we do that are embodied, repetitive, and impart some kind of value or meaning to us. And so, Mm -hmm. I mean, even churches, I go to a church where if I said the word liturgy, a lot of people are still uncomfortable too. Um, But we have a certain kind of rhythm for a service. You know, we sing three songs and we do our prayer and the offering and the sermon lasts a certain amount of time. And in our prayers and a lot of times in our worship music, we have a lot of the same phrases and, and language that we'll use kind of over and over again. And even things like baptism and communion, you know, are embodied and impart meaning. But then I wanted to broaden it out to include things in people's everyday life because I wanted us to think about spiritual formation, not just in terms of maybe intentional practices, but all of the things that we don't realize that we do, the habits that we get into when it comes to media consumption, the way we relate to our neighbors, like in our literal neighborhood and grocery store and school and all of those kinds of things, because they're teaching us things um, sometimes at a level that we aren't even realizing that we couldn't necessarily communicate, but they're really powerful. And the fact that the church kind of has things that that match that is really useful because it means that there's resources we have to form us um, in other ways counter to what, you know, might be forming us in the world. Yeah. And, and in the uh, as we talk about politics, you say here that in response to the backlash from many young Christians, a lot of times we, instead of hitting it head on and talking politics and trying to understand how we're being formed. We just avoid it altogether. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what's the danger uh, in your mind when leaders, but just Christians in general, try to say, oh, we shouldn't talk politics and try to avoid politics. Yeah, I think it really ignores the fact that politics, uh, our media consumption, rallies, politicians, all of those things aren't just giving people information. They are really discipling them. And so for us to be uninvolved in that conversation is to really be absent in something that is really formative in people's lives. Um, the other thing I would say is just that the church, um, you know, God's people from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve's commission to steward creation to, you know, God's original conversation with Abraham of like being a people for the nation. We've always had an identity of seeking the good of the communities around us. And we have political tools in a country that gives us a voice in that process to seek the good of our neighbor in these ways. And it's important that we talk about that so that we use those well, instead of using them in ways that can be destructive to our neighbors, which sometimes might not be our intention, but we Mm -hmm. don't know their needs well enough to even know how to engage. And so we end up in a situation where we're engaging. We might not think that we are, but our passivity is often just kind of allowing the status quo to continue. And our neighbors have real needs and we have ability to serve them personally, but we also have these kind of structural means to serve them and we should use them. So I I think you had me in this book when you began by (laughs) quoting Karl Barth like that, that already. I I mean, I'd love to just read this quote because there's another quote that I reference a lot on the show, but what you include here, says the church cannot have an inner life without having at the same time a life which expresses itself outwardly as well. 
she cannot hear her Lord and not hear the groaning of creation. Another mm-hmm. quote that I often use of his is he says, do theology with the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Mm-hmm. This idea that they go hand in hand. But Brian and I are, are both pastors first. And some of the pushback that we've often got is, why are you guys talking about political things? Just talk about mm-hmm. spiritual things. You're pastors on a Christian radio station. Why? Why muddy the waters with, with politics? Shouldn't we just be talking about loving our neighbor, which you kind of alluded to just then? What do, what do you say to the person who thinks it's incongruent for a pastor or even a Christ follower to engage in political conversations? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I would say is that we are pretty uh, picky sometimes about what we consider political and what we don't. (laughs) And yet there are all sorts of things that people would say, you know, my pastor got up on a Sunday morning and said this from the pulpit about abortion or about, you know, the value of the family. They would not necessarily think of that as political. But if their pastor got up and, and was preaching out of a passage that directly talks about wealth and poverty or about how nations treat uh, immigrants, you know, all of those kinds of things that go, oh, that's political, um, but it's in scripture and it's important. And sometimes I think we think that we're not being political when we're actually very much like the, the prophets in Jeremiah who said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Like we are not telling people the truth about what scripture says and about the conditions in our world because they might not be affecting us personally, but they really are affecting our neighbors in ways that we need to care about. Um, and Bart is a good example too of someone who you know, he had some statements prior to the Nazi regime of kind of wanting to, to remain a little apolitical. He'd been burned a little bit by, um, you know, being too far in, in kind of a socialist kind of understanding of things. And yet when things got really intense politically, engages very much and, and, and is the primary author of the Barman Declaration. And so it's evidence to me of, you know, when you're not kind of faced with a real extreme example, you might think you can be unengaged, but then things get really intense and you realize people are being harmed mm. in serious ways, in ways that maybe were happening before. I think, you know, I don't want to make any comparison to, to Nazis in the US, but to recognize that sometimes it takes a pretty extreme example of seeing suffering up close and saying, okay, this is something that now our witness is compromised if we don't say something about it. Mm-hmm. Like you told us uh, when you introduced yourself, you work with kind of the younger generation in the church. And I think mm-hmm. um, we understand that especially that generation is weary and tired, especially of the politics. But I'm wondering specifically, like when you are talking to the to the stu- to that generation that you kind of minister to, what are the things you're hearing? What are the frustrations mm-hmm. you're hearing? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are frustrated by what they perceive as hypocrisy in the church when it comes to kind of what I just said about, you know, we're willing to say some political things, but not others. Um, and I just think a lot of them, we grew up hearing kind of conflicting messages of, you know, read your Bible very literally, take it seriously. Uh, when it tells you to do things, you should do it. And then we also were taught that, you know, Republican or conservative politics should just sort of spring from the pages. And those two things don't always work together. You know, there are some conservative policies that might be very aligned with things scripture says, and then there's some that will not. And I think the the kind of cognitive dissonance of being like, well, we're reading the Bible the way you told us to read it. And so it's causing us to care about justice and it's causing us to care about race and it's causing us to care about the poor. And now you're acting upset or surprised that, you know, the tools that you gave us, we're using, you know, I think pretty faithfully. Um, that frustration is pretty intense. And I think it causes a lot of people to want to just leave. And the, the message I always want to give to pastors is, I don't think it's just because people want to leave the church. I think they want us to be consistent with the witness that that we were taught we were supposed to have. And we have a real opportunity to kind of keep people from leaving by being mm. faithful to that. Um, but when we just turn, you know, make it about generational differences instead of about, are we really being faithful to, to what scripture calls us to? I think we really miss out on a, on a really good opportunity to get people involved. 
Yeah, that's good. Uh, that other voice you hear is Caitlin Chess. Uh, she's the author of a book entitled uh, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. And Caitlin is kind enough to join us for a second segment as we continue to dive into this really important topic and this really great book that she has written. So stay with us. Uh, Caitlin is going to continue to join us here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. So Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us uh, on this Monday afternoon. Uh, we're thrilled to be joined but for a second segment by Caitlin Chess. Caitlin is uh, the author of a book that's out now called The Liturgy of Politics. And Caitlin, uh, much of what we're talking about here is the job that the church can be as a training ground uh, for mm-hmm. political engagement. Could you give uh, kind of paint a picture of us for us? Practically speaking, how can the church do a good job at being a training ground for politics like this? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's that's pretty foundational is just having this rooted sense of community, of my primary identity, my primary community is the family of God. And that family crosses generations and, you know, thousands of years and it crosses around the globe. And we have all sorts of practices and language in the church that can really root us in that identity. And that's important because the primary identities that a lot of people find themselves in because of the influence of politics are, you know, maybe their immediate community, but very often their country or, you know, a sliver of the demographic of their country that really looks like them or thinks like them. And that drives a lot of us versus them, a lot of fear, a lot of misplaced loyalty. And yet if the church is the foundation of our identity and our community, then it provides us an opportunity to to see the needs of each other, um, to act in ways that are faithful out in the world. You know, I was talking to someone earlier today about prayer requests and how, you know, in my Bible study, every week we have prayer requests. If we're in a pretty homogenous community and, and we're seeking not to be, but still are to a certain extent, if we're in a pretty homogenous community, those prayer requests look like the things I'm used to thinking about, like the needs that are pretty familiar to me. But if the church was trying you know, our best to be a, a faithful representation of the communities that we are in, there would be a diversity of needs and burdens that would hopefully shape me into the kind of person who can not only you know, personally interact with people and serve them, but also take those needs and burdens in my mind with me to you know, the ballot. When I'm, when I'm filling out my ballot, when I'm you know, attending some kind of political event, when I'm thinking about writing a letter to an elected official or making a phone call, you know, suddenly those needs are very real to me. And there's not a lot of other kinds of places where people can both be in a really diverse community and have their needs very openly presented to each other, but also places where, you know, there's kind of a motivation for really seeking not just the good of the, of the group itself. You know, the church is not a lobbyist group or a special interest group, but a place where part of what ties us together is seeking the good of our communities and practicing that in service and practicing that in, in Bible study and community and um, Sunday service and all those kinds of things. But that becomes kind of the foundation for acting in the world. And too often Christians treat politics like this extracurricular thing Mm. that's kind of tacked on to the foundational life of the church. And I think we really miss something when we do that. That's really well said. It's, it's kind of like we, we don't just vote with ballots. We vote with our lives and how we spend our money and who we have conversations with. And even as a pastor who we read, you know, I've been convicted Mm. the last couple of years, even about how homogenous so many of my resources have been in, in sermon writing. And I, Mm. I'd love for you to weigh in on this because I don't know if this applies or not, but when I've taught on like technology or social media, one of the things I'll say is that social media is not good or bad, but it's not neutral. It, it is yeah. forming us. There's a formative part there. And you wrote this book about spiritual formation for the sake of our neighbor. 
And some people might already be cheering. They're like team spiritual formation. They like get that language. They understand. <laughs> other people are like, what? No, we like pray a prayer so that we go to heaven when we die. And we right, tell other people right. to also pray a prayer. Can you talk to me a little bit more about the spiritual formation component and how politics shapes us and kind of what you're inviting people into as a, as a different way of looking at this? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of the the soapbox or drumbeat of the book and, and all of my talking about it that I've done is is that we live whole lives that that witness to the truth of the gospel. And part of the way that I grew up was kind of like you described, like you invite Jesus into your heart and that's kind of the whole story. You go to heaven. That's great. And I really was confronted in my first year of seminary with how much language in the New Testament there is about the kingdom of God and Jesus going around preaching about the kingdom of God and that not always being explicitly explained, but then there's a story of him healing someone or bringing redemption to a community in some kind of way. And even his description, the beginning of Luke of like the inauguration of his ministry is quoting from Isaiah of bringing freedom to the captives and sight to the blind and, and this vision of really at the very end, a reference to the Jubilee year of like, there's restoration in the community. And that is not really the image <laughs> that I was often given in church. Um, I think sometimes, especially with kids um, and then up into teenagers, we think, just get them in the door, like just get them to pray the prayer, get them to kind of agree to the beliefs. And I don't think that that's the kind of captivating vision that Jesus went around preaching, that especially a generation that's very justice oriented, very concerned with inequality in the world they would really latch on to a more holistic view of not only what Jesus came to proclaim, but what that means for our lives, including not just, you know, yes, you have spiritual disciplines, you have the worship of the church that should form you and your kind of inner person, but also this idea that all of those things are meant to form you into the kind of person who can faithfully live out that in the world. Um, things like spiritual disciplines that kind of force you outward, like fasting, um, not just for depriving yourself, but that so you can give to others who are in need. Those kinds of things that are like very central to how the church has often functioned, but yet have often kind of taken a sideline in modern American evangelicalism. It's a really sad thing because those are the kinds of things that I think, you know, my generation and the one after me um, recognize the value of and would really latch on to. Um, and too often we've assumed that what they want is like cool coffee shops or like hip music. And I think they would be really drawn more to this captivating vision of of what it really means holistically to be a Christian in the world. Hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh Ian touched on social media. I'm just curious, especially with the younger generation and all that they see on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever else. How, how do you um, what are you telling the people that you're ministering to? Like use social media in mm. this way. Be careful here. What's what's kind of the advice you're giving? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it's the standard advice people will give of kind of set limits for yourself about how much you're on it um, and kind of have a diversity of sources that you're engaged with. So a lot of the conversations I have with with my people because I'm interested in politics is like, where do I get my media from? Where do I get my news from? Um, and, you know, I'll say a lot of those standard things of, you know, try and find a bunch of different sources that you can listen to. Um, but the biggest thing that I do, I have a little list of questions that I have taped up near my computer that I give to a lot of people in my in my Bible study that just ask some basic questions about who am I being asked to love? Who am I being asked to fear or hate? What vision of the good life am I being asked uh, to love or desire? Uh, what loyalty is being cultivated in me? All of those kinds of questions, because so often our focus is on the external information, like, you know, is this a liberal kind of bias? Is this a conservative bias? And those things are important to think about to get kind of a balanced perspective. 
But for a believer, I think the more important question is like, what are these underlying desires and loves and fears that are being cultivated in me? Not so that I never engage, but so that I have an ability to engage without it affecting me automatically, subconsciously, and then in a way that can be really dangerous, not just in the way I vote or the way I engage politically, but in all other areas of my life. If those stories really form me, they will shape me, you know, not just when I'm voting, but all the time. That's so helpful. We we had uh, Rich Velotas on last week talking about his book, Deep mm-hmm. Informed Life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been really trying to better understand things like a rule of life and how we can sort of like exactly what you were saying. How do we actually make decisions? I heard a pastor years ago say habits eat willpower for breakfast. So often we (laughs) think we're just going to will ourselves to act like Jesus when we're just going to wake up and be more loving or more aware of injustices in the world. He's like, no, no, no. Establish rhythms and habits and the kinds of things that seem so unsexy at times. I'd love for you just to make like one or two suggestions. What's like one or two tweaks or something someone could listening right now who's maybe hearing all this for the first time What's one shift that they can make in their thinking or their activity to pay more attention, not just to what they're doing, but who they're becoming? And then lastly, just hit us with every website or email address or Twitter handle that people can learn more about you. Yeah. So one of the things I would say is just do an audit of an everyday life, um, a day in the life. You know, what are the things that happen every single day? Maybe do a couple in a row to see what commonalities there are and just recognize that things that you think are really small, but that are repetitive and impart some kind of meaning and use your body will will be more formative than you realize. That doesn't mean that it's bad, but it means that you should be reflective on it. Hmm. Um, And the second thing I would say, one of the first things I started out doing when I was getting interested in this stuff was just praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. I had a little alarm on my phone that would go off. Um, and it's incredible how formative that prayer is, not just because obviously, you know, Jesus tells us to pray it. It must be very important, but just how much it changes your life in the world. You know, when I pray, give us this day, our daily bread, and I'm not worried about my food, where it's coming from, but my neighbor is, and I just prayed that it's really mm. hard to pray that. And then not expect that God might be asking me to be the answer to that prayer in someone's mm. life. Or when I pray, you know, your kingdom come, that that doesn't have material implications on my life, on my finances, on my relationships. Um, it's just been a more formative practice than I realized. And I think it's a good place to kind of start, especially if you're from a tradition that's a little wary of spiritual disciplines <laughs> or things like that. Um, and so, yeah, that's what that's where I would start. Um, and you can find me at KeatlinChess.com. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at KeatlinChess. Um, one of the things I would say is on the website, I have a couple of practices and prayers for the election season. Um, so even if you're not able to get the book right now, those would be a good place to start. Absolutely. That uh, other voice here is Caitlin Chess. She is the author of The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Caitlin, this was wonderful. Thanks so much for taking uh, all this time to join us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Uh, You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Ian's first day back after being gone for a while, so I'm going to put you on the spot. I don't know if you're prepared for it, but do you have any holidays for us today? Or are you out of practice from being gone for 10 days? No, no, sir. I've had them right here just waiting oh, yes. with a you to ask Oh, me. yes. Let's end the show well. Okay, so a couple of like real ones before we get to the weird ones. In Jamaica, it's National Heroes Day. That's awesome. Like the sandwich or like the people? The people. I don't think that's how you say the sandwich. No, no, like there is a sandwich, like a sub, like a hero, but then there's also the euro. I don't think. It, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, you, there's a hero sandwich? Yes, 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 yes. What is a hero sandwich? I will look it up as you tell us the other ones. I will make sure <laughs> to get it right. But also, right here in the good old US of A, it's Alaska Day observed. I, 
did not know that. Observed. <laughs> mo- yeah, yeah, just observed. It's Mother Teresa Beautification Day in Albania. Cool. Did not know that. Okay, now here's what I don't get. Under the category of weird, it's National Kentucky Day. So why is Alaska Day under state holiday, but Kentucky Day is under weird? <laughs> That's a that good seems question. Un- unkind. It's that also feels national. Like, that feels like an editorial comment by whoever wrote this. Mm-hmm. Is what it is. Indeed, indeed. National Seafood Bisque Day and National Clean Your Virtual Desktop Day. Which brings me, Brian, to a question <laughs> I've never thought to ask: How many things are on your desktop right now? Uh, well, I have told you that th- what I use for a desk is also my dresser. So it's it's one no, no, and no. the same. No, your virtual desktop. Oh, What's on your yeah. desktop on your oh, on your c- computation device? Oh, it's so funny you bring that up because just this morning I'm going, why do I have all these documents on my desktop? I need to clear these. There's like 30 just random like icons right now that should not be on there. So I need to do observe they- this holiday today. And you don't have them like in order? Like they don't you don't have them like snap to grid? It's just all over the desktop? No, no, they're still in a grid, but they don't need to be up. It's not like I'm working on this or something. So they should be I in a you. folder somewhere. It's so funny you bring that up because I literally was looking at them this morning <laughs> going, this is this needs to end right now. <laughs> That's the Lord. That's the Lord convicting you, Brian. It's a holiday. So uh, this is what I thought. A sub sandwich. So just a normal sub sandwich is also known as a hoagie, a grinder or a hero. So uh, they are. Uh, th- oh. That is also a hero sandwich. So. Hoagies and Grinders reminds me of that Adam Sandler, so, Chris Farley so, uh, lunch lady song. It's from SNL. so true. So uh, <laughs> here's why I know this and you don't. It's part of my childhood. New Yorkers call it a hero. New Englanders call mm. it a grinder, but it's not so much out here. So anyway, last week we were we were void of any holidays. We did not. We were not able to do any of them while you're gone. So it is uh, yet another reason that we're glad to have you back. So. <laughs> I mean, you could have done them. I, I know it's your I mean, thing. It just felt ow. weird to do. So that's my thing, thing now. We should have had you call in every day from vacation nope. only with holidays. Nope. <laughs> I would have pre-recorded them before you before I did that. <laughs> well, I wanted to end the show this way just because I found it uh, something interesting as a pastor. I remember as a youth pastor, these are the types of conversations that you kind of have with people sometimes. So Jen Wilkin at Christianity Today back at the end of September wrote this article, Your Devotional is not a Bible. So why don't you get us into this? And then maybe we'll just talk about why this is an important thing as we, as we end the day today. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever read her before. She did a a study on the Lord's prayer years ago that I used when we did a series on the Lord's prayer at Poplar Creek. And it, it was wonderful. I I think she's a real gifted writer and teacher and thinker. And uh, so this I thought was interesting because it's a conversation that I've had a lot as of late. I'm not really sure why, but let me just let me just get into it, and then you and I, as pastors, can duke it out. Uh, she begins by saying, "What do Bible teachers do for fun on a Friday night? They check the Amazon list to see which Bible translation holds the top spot." <laughs> the last time I looked, it was the NIV. The NIV has been the best-selling translation in the U.S. for decades, but on Amazon's rankings, the translation sat at number five, beat out by two children's Bibles, an audio Bible, and at number one a popular devotional guide that somehow made its way into the Bible category. The devotional far outshone the Bibles on the list, boasting 5,800 five-star reviews in 18 months. Seeing it at the top spot was a reminder of how many Christians rely on daily devotions as a formative practice and how big a business devotional books have become. But how are these resources forming us? This is a question we were talking about earlier in the show regarding politics. 
Does a devotional yield devotion in the biblical sense? Again, I scanned through descriptions for the other popular devotionals on Amazon. Among the 10 bestsellers, one offered 365 days of, quote, inspiring, unexpected, humble teachings on grace and love that will prepare you for the day ahead. Another provided, quote, an inspiring Bible verse to reflect and meditate on throughout your week. Still another promise that readers would, quote, be inspired to activate living your life on mission. The takeaways was clear. Daily devotion involves being inspired. But another defining element also emerged consistently in the descriptions. One book was, quote, designed to help alleviate your worries as you learn to live in peace of the almighty God. Others promised, quote, words of encouragement, comfort and reassurance of God's unending love, the ability to tackle life with, quote, the wisdom and comfort of the Bible. Another takeaway, daily devotions involves being comforted. According to the bestselling list, to be devoted is to be inspired and comforted. But according to the Bible, it's something much more. Before I kind of get into her definition of the much more, what do you what do you take of sort of her premise? Is there a problem with being inspired and comforted or is the problem when it's only inspiration and comfort? You took the words right out of my mouth. It's when it's only inspiration and only comfort uh, and only uh, you know, kind of your best day and your best foot forward as opposed to, you know, uh, a devotional on lament or something like that. And, and so I think devotionals are great. Uh, but again, to her point, they can't take the place. It's not devotional or Bible. It's devotionals, uh, you know, being kind of a supplement and a help uh, to the Bible. Yeah. What she goes on to say, the Bible uses the term devoted to mean consecrated or set apart for special service as a museum devotes a wing to displaying a particular art form. So God devotes us to display his image. Yet we sometimes mistakenly equate devotion with emotion. Devotion is not mere feeling, but action. Well, that's a good word. It serves and it obeys. Jesus made this connection when he taught that quote, no one can serve two masters. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. Compare those best-selling descriptions from Amazon to Paul's words. All scriptures inspired by God and is profitable for teaching for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. While best-selling devotional books offer formation through inspiration, word, inspirational words of comfort, true Christian devotion, the formative practice of being set apart to serve, is founded on inspired words that correct. I'd love to know, Brian, is that something that like makes you uneasy? Are you like cheering? You're like, yeah, that's right. Or is there an element here that thinks... Oh, yeah, man, that's that's not a word that you hear all that often anymore. That word correct you're talking about? Yeah. I, yeah, it's challenging. And I, I do think uh, she's bringing up a really interesting and important point here that, um, that that devotionals aren't inspired by God. Right. But, yeah, the Bible, you know, the Bible doesn't always just encourage and doesn't always just comfort and inspire us. Sometimes it challenges us. And, and I think her point is devotionals, if they were written in that way, probably wouldn't sell very well. And that's why they, they right. kind of go a certain direction. So, yeah, you know, the Bible's a double edged sword. It does correct and it does challenge us. And I think her point is well taken. We can't just be going for the devotional kind of, hey, make you feel better without uh, sitting under God's inspired word. Yeah, and she does talk about devotional writing when done with excellence may supplement our time mm -hmm. in scriptures, but it must not subordinate or supplant it. That That's a really good word. I posted this before we left, but I said something like Jesus comforts the shaken and shakes the comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think I would I could say the same for scripture that, yeah, there absolutely are words of comfort and inspiration, but there are also words of correction, of rebuke again, you know, in love, but. So, I mean, you think about even the prophetic language, there was a lot of corrective words. They're like, hey, you're, you're going to really miss this. This is 
this is not how we're to behave. And if you don't change your way, something, something terrible is going to happen. Like th- that would be yeah. tough to have a modern devotional kind of on, in that vein. But I think, uh, yeah, I think her caution here is, is well warranted. Yeah. She ends the article by saying, you know, devotionals kind of come and go, but the word of the Lord ever profitable for both comfort and correction indoors forever. And I think that's a great mm-hmm. takeaway as we close out the show here. Uh, you know, devotionals aren't a bad thing. This isn't a good versus bad thing, but uh, let's be men and women uh, committed to uh, to sitting under the authority of scripture and reading it and digesting it and loving it. Well, Ian, it's been great to have you back. Maybe you'll come back tomorrow. I hope you do. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I guess that's the same for all of us, isn't it? <laughs> it's good to be back together. We're glad that you joined us on this Monday. And remember, you can find anything you missed at Facebook or on our, or on our podcast. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Join us again from 4 until 6 tomorrow. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.